Father, thanks for this day, and I pray that you'd open the word to us that we, as we study, give us understanding from your Holy Spirit, guide our discussions, and we just thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. We're working our way down through this topic of demons, and uh, last week we got through four of seventeen slides, so we're a little bit behind, but that's all right. We'll just we. The nice thing about this class is we're done when we're done, you know. So um, we got through the names of, and titles of the evil spirits as we see through the New Testament. Um, demons, of course, being the uh, the most common name we see in the New Testament, at least, um, which has as its root word the idea of knowledge, of knowing. Christ confronted the demons on many occasions. And we're up to their appearance. Now, when we talk about demons and their appearance, one of the things that we get from our current mythology is whenever you see a demon, what does it look like? An ugly thing, right? It's got talons, it's got claws, it's got... It breathes fire, it uh, smokes, it, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. It's got horns. Um, when you see the devil, he's got a forked tail with a pitchfork, you know. Right. Well, unless you follow the Dilbert cartoons, it's filled with a spoon. You have to follow Dilbert to, to remember that one. Um, but anyways... Uh, that mythology is, is really not correct. In fact, any time you look at paintings, for example, um, if you go over to like the Louvre or some place like that and you see religious art, religious paintings, many times demons are portrayed as grotesquely deformed beings. You know, they look sort of like middle, in between a bat and a, and a scorpion, all kinds of stuff like that. Well, the Bible indicates that that's not the way demons look at all. Demons are created by God, so what do you think they look like? Beautiful. Beautiful. They're not ugly. They're not grotesque. They're, now, they are evil, correct? They are evil. So, morally, they're grotesque. But there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that a demon looks grotesque. There's nothing to say that they, they, are, they reek of brimstone. In fact... You know, one of the other misconceptions is that the demons inhabit hell. Demons don't inhabit hell. You think there's demons in hell right now? They're probably nowhere near that place. There's no indication in the Bible that demons inhabit hell. There's, there's no place in the Bible that Satan is the jailer of hell. Think of all the common, it's, it's interesting, think of all the common shows on TV where sort of like Satan is the keeper of hell. You know, he's, he's sort of the jailer down there. Um, there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that he's the jailer of hell. There's no indication that demons are in hell at this point. What about the ones in everlasting darkness? That's different. That's different. That's different. We'll talk about those. But as far as demons having their domain as being hell, that that's their base of operations, they've got offices there, and their job is to torment souls in hell, none of that is biblical. In fact, the Bible teaches quite clearly in First, Second Corinthians 11. In fact, let's look this verse up. these verses up. 2 Corinthians 11:13-14 that far from being grotesque and distorted and weird angels appear as angels of light. Somebody read this for us here. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So when Satan shows up, how does Satan show up? As an angel of light. Okay. There's nothing grotesque about that. Um, if you've ever studied the origins of Mormon Mormonism, um, you find that uh, Mormonism supposedly started. Well, it was not supposedly. It was started by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith had a problem. He asked God what denomination he should join. And, of course, God shows up and says, don't join any. I'll make a new one. And uh, he has this angel called Moroni appear to him, a beautiful angel that supposedly gave him golden plates to translate. All right. Now, if that angel had shown up as a grotesque being with fire and reeking of brimstone, how would he have responded? 
Right. How did the angel show up? As an angel of light. Now, I don't know whether, you know, it, the problem with Joseph Smith was pizza and beer, whatever they had back then, to give him these nightmares. But uh, anyways, let's say it was true. Let's say he did have some angelic being show up to him. This angelic being did not show up as a demon, grotesque, deformed, showed up as an angel of light. How is Satan going to deceive us if he shows up as a demon? He's not. Satan shows up as an angel of light. Satan shows up as something attractive. He shows up as something that would draw you to him. There's nothing to indicate that he would show up as anything other than that. Um, So when you think of demons, when you think of a demon appearing, don't think of forked tails, don't think of horns, don't think of twisted, distorted features, don't think they exude smoke, fire and brimstone. They show up as angels of light, if indeed they show up. They show up as the good thing. They show up as a beautiful thing. Lucifer, was he ugly? He was the most beautiful angel that was ever created. He, he was full of perfection. All right. So there's no indication here that demons appear as ugly. And that's one of the things to, to understand. Satan is in the deception business. Remember? Satan is not in the business of getting you to commit personal acts of sin. You do that all by yourself. Satan is in the business of deceiving. And deception works only when you're able to sell something bad as something good. And that's how he's going to do it. He's going to sell it as something righteous, something good, something beautiful, when in fact it is not. So that, uh, that's their appearance. How they organize? Well, the Bible tells us a little bit about this. We are, are given some glimpses into their organizational structure. Um, in Daniel 10.13, there's an interesting reference where Gabriel says he was held up by the prince of Persia. And as you read that text there, you have to ask yourself, well, what does it mean he was held up by the prince of Persia and he had to have Michael come and help him? All right. Well, could that have been a human prince? Could that have been a human? The prince of Persia, could that have been a human being? Probably not. I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're telling me a human being could hold up an angel from delivering a message. I doubt that. Um, Angels are much more powerful than men. They're not going to be slowed down by anything we might do as human beings. Um, But it does seem to indicate that there was this entity designated as the Prince of Persia that held up Gabriel. And the only thing that could hold up Gabriel would be what? Another angel, another angelic being. Now, would this angelic being have been a bad one? Yeah, and how do you know it couldn't have been a good one? Because he kept him from doing what he did. And of course, we don't have any of that problem with the angels. So this was an evil angel. This was some demonic force that was holding back Gabriel from delivering the message to Daniel, delaying him, such that Gabriel had to have Michael come and help. All right. So there is some organizational structure, evidently, to demonic forces. Now, we get another hint of this. In Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28, and we're going to talk about this when we get to Satan. In Ezekiel 28, it talks about the king of Tyre. And as we read the king of Tyre there, it's talking about a real nation. By the way, Tyre was a real nation. So it's talking about a real nation of Tyre. Okay, everybody look at your watches. I can get away with that with her, see. We're saying anybody who come in late, we're all going to look at our watches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, in Ezekiel 28, you have the king of Persia, or king of Tyre, excuse me. And as you read that, you say, you know, it talks about, well, you were, you were in the garden of God. And you think, well, now wait a minute. The king of Tyre was not in the garden of God. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It said that uh, you were... You were walked among the stones of fire. Well, wait a minute. You know, that's not the king of Tyre. That's not the human king. You can't be referring to him. And so what you find as you work through that passage in Ezekiel 28 is that's not referring to the human king of Tyre. That's referring to the power behind the human king of Tyre. And the power behind the human king of Tyre is what? Satan. All right. 
And what was the Tyre at that point? Tyre was a nation. Tyre was a nation. All right. And it was a nation opposed to the plans and purposes of God. And then um, Isaiah 14, there's another passage in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. It talks about Lucifer, the son of the morning, morning and, and that he was, he, he was lifted up in pride and God cast him down to hell to the sides of the pit. And that's in all reference to the king of Babylon. As you read, in fact, Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 14 are two chapters that refer to the Babylonian destruction, that God's going to destroy the Babylonian empire. But behind the king of Babylon is who? Satan is behind that. So you see a glimpse of the activity of Satan as, as, the, as the prophecy is given to the, the human king of Babylon. You see behind the human king of Babylon, you see Satan. Here's another one. How about um, Revelation? Who's behind the power of the Antichrist? Satan is. And who does he get help with? He gets help from the false prophet. Where does the false prophet get his power? Now, what can the false prophet do? Yeah, what can he do? He did miracles, didn't he? He called down fire from heaven. He caused the image of the mark of the beast to speak. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff, right? And one of the things we've got to be careful of is, you know, when we see miraculous type things going on, everybody says, well, that's God. How do you know it's God? How do you know? You may not. You've got to be careful. I mean, if you're the average person walking around at the time of the Great Tribulation and you see this man who's talking about worshiping the Antichrist and he's calling down fire from heaven and doing signs and miracles and wonders and things like that, what are you going to think as the average normal run-of-the-mill person. This is the real deal. And what is Satan going to do? He's going to deceive humanity by the billions. He has an organizational structure. There is some organization to Satan. Now, this is the interesting thing. Let's, let's step back and look at it from 20,000 feet. Satan's kingdom, is it a... Um, compare Satan's rule with God's rule. All right. He has a trinity uh, opposite to all the He's going to. But when you look at Satan's organization, if you're going to do an organizational analysis of Satan's kingdom, one of the things you'll find is that although there's an organizational structure there, by nature, what is evil? What does evil emphasize? Huh? Selfishness. All right. Can you run an empire on selfishness? Everybody's out for themselves, right? Um, you know, I, I, I'm a World War II semi-buff, and I like, you know, looking at the Nazi empire and, and seeing how that crumbled. And if you look at it, you say, well, of course it's going to crumble because everybody was in it for themselves. It wasn't... It wasn't like they were in it for the country. There, there was, everybody was in it to jockey for their own position, their own power, their own little place. It isn't going to be able to stand. Whereas God's kingdom is not like that, right? God's kingdom is not based on selfishness. It's based on otherness. On what's best for others. Evil destroys itself. Right. So although Satan has control to a degree over the demonic forces it is a chaotic control following what's going on following what I'm trying to say here it's a chaotic control it's not like every single demon and all all Satan that they're they're a well-oiled structural machine you know doing things although there there's there's organization there even within that well-oiled sort of if you want to think about a machine, there are beings that are in it for themselves. There are beings that are selfish, that are centered on themselves, on what they want. And even though they sort of work together, nevertheless, there is an inherent weakness in that system. Does that make any sense, what's going on here? Because we're going to find some of that in the, in the next few slides, how that all works out. But there is an organizational structure. Having said that, there is an organizational structure to Satan's kingdom. All right. Now, one of the things we have to be careful of is when we think about this, we can't go too far. All right. 
For example, you know, if you read Frank Peretti's books, if anyone here read Frank Peretti's books, you know, hopefully you all understand that was fiction. Most Christians don't understand that that was fiction. They thought that was the real deal. He wrote Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness. It was um, books popular probably about 15 years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's fiction. Understand that's fiction. Okay. The problem is most Christians who read those books that I talked to didn't understand them as fiction. They understood them as fact. All right. And so when you read Frank Peretti's book, you have all, and we're going to bring him up later on, where you have you know prayer shields and things like that. None of that's in the Bible. There's none of that is found in Scripture. But one of the things that he he really popularizes this whole notion of territorial demons and spirits. And you have groups today that believe in territorial demons and spirits. They believe that there's a demon in charge of the United States. And most Christians believe there's demons behind Obama. It's a joke. 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 All right. Um, they probably do. Um, but there's demons um, behind every nation. And then there's a demon over every governor of a state. And then there's a demon over a town and a city and a block. And they even have prayer walks where you go through your city and you, you supposedly reclaim your blocks in the name of Jesus and cast out the demons and all that kind of stuff. Folks, you know, that may or may not be true, but there's nothing in the Scripture that says it is. Where you have territorial demons. Because the idea is if you have territorial demons, you can cast the demon out of the city block. That's not in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that would tell us that. I mean, the Scripture hints that yes, there is an organizational structure. And yes, Satan is behind some of the affairs of men. But how that works out and all of its detail, we're not given that information. That's fiction. Okay? And the reason I say is we need to stick with the Bible because what you have a lot of times as Christians out there doing all kinds of supposed spiritual warfare kinds of things that may or may not be valid at all. And we'll talk about that when we get to spiritual warfare. And we'll do a critique of that whole concept. I, I knew a lady that actually had her church come out and they walked around her property to get the demons out of her property. Where's that in the Bible? It's not. Now, may there be a demon showing up on her property now and then? Yeah, sure, but we're not given glimpses into that. We're not given insights into that kind of thing. And, and what happens is there, a lot of this, uh, you know, this idea of territorial spirits, it, it drives fear, it drives speculation, it drives things that may or may not be valid at all. Most likely they're not valid. You don't see the New Testament. In the New Testament, you see the churches walking through their cities, casting out the demons on the blocks and on the streets and on the... No, you don't see that. Did Paul recognize that there was demonic forces out there been on the structure he did but he didn't know how they worked or there wasn't any idea of I'm going to go directly confront this this is all speculation and that's all fiction that's all fiction all right so be careful don't don't go all the way down that path where you know I got to find the demon that's you know sitting around my house in my living room or I can't be spiritually successful no there's there's nothing to indicate that you know your house has demons sitting around trying to get you to do things. There's your house is demon possessed. There's there's no indication of that in scripture. No, we don't. In and of ourselves we do not. No. And we're going to talk about the whole concept of binding Satan. That is another fiction. You know, where I bind this you in the name of Jesus and that kind of stuff. Look, folks, we're, we're, that's, not, that's not biblical. That, that kind of spiritual warfare concept is not spiritual, biblical. And what we're going to find is when the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, it doesn't talk about going out and finding the demons and beating them on the head with the sword of the Spirit. It talks about standing firm. It talks about, you know, beware of what they're going on. Be vigilant. Watch. And stand firm. Have your armor on, as it says in, in Ephesians chapter 6. But I don't know what the demons are up to, other than generally they're against God. I don't know what their machinations are. And to, do, to try and have some concept that I know what they're up to is, is, is really uh, fictionalizing it a lot. 
It's just making stuff up. All right? Yeah. Excuse me, Ephesians, you know, that talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, etc., etc. The word principalities is the word from which prince comes, prince of Tyre, prince of Persia. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I think that even though it ultimately actually was... Uh, a, a, a demon, a fallen angel holding up, for instance, the, uh, the angel Gabriel from getting to Daniel mm. and getting the message to Daniel, it could have been in the form or, or, or an actual person. I mean, Jim Jones, Guyana, was a human being, but he was being totally ruled by prince, principalities, evil. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it the ultimate power was demonic, mm-hmm. although it, Hitler, you name it, although it was a human being that was the hold up or the evil doer, but not really the evil doer because it's not right. flesh and blood, it's principality and power. And you see that with the Antichrist, right? Yes. The Antichrist doesn't do the things he does by his own power, rather the dragon gives him power, Right. So it's not the Antichrist, it's the dragon behind the Antichrist who gives him the power. The, the point is, here's the point that I'm trying to make, and, and, and hopefully I'm not beating a horse to death here. The Bible does give us certain little snippet glimpses. glimpses. It's like walking along a, a board fence and every once in a while there's a knot hole and we get a little glimpse of something going on on the other side. But we're not in the stands. We don't understand the whole picture. We don't see everything that's going on. We see a glimpse now and then. We see Satan active here. We see a demon doing something here. We're given a hint that there is is demonic forces at work. But how they're operating, what they're doing, all we know is that they're opposing God. That's what we know. We know that. But we don't know specifically how they're doing it or what they're up to necessarily. And Paul says behind every idol there is what? A demon. The things that Gentiles sacrifice to idols are actually sacrificing to demons. Demons are behind false spiritual systems of belief. That's really where they're, that's where 99% of their activity goes, is in deception. When you, when, we're going to talk about this a little bit in, um, in, in the spiritual warfare part. When you expose yourself to demonic forces willingly through Ouija boards, through seances, through whatever you have out there, you expose yourself to the possibility of becoming oppressed by them, to have what we call a familiar spirit, to, to, to have them get their sort of, I don't want to use the word claws, that's probably not a good word, but to get their claws into you. Now, once you receive Christ, the power of the demonic forces are broken. All right? But there's, you know, they can oppress you. Demons can't oppress believers, right? Paul had a messenger of Satan. All right? Saul had a demon come and oppress him. Why did Saul have the demon oppress him? Because he opened himself up to that through his what? Disobedience. Here's the thing, folks. When you're disobedient to God, when you open yourself up to rebellion and when you actively participate in sin, you expose yourself to to Satan. You, 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 um, how do you want to put it? We're talking about being delivered to Satan where Paul says in, in 1 Timothy where he delivers two guys to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean to be delivered to Satan? Well, it means to be taken outside of the protection of the church to be exposed to Satan and be left on your own. All right? When someone is, um, for example, disciplined out of the church, what are you doing? Giving them over to Satan. And, and, and when you're given over to Satan, Satan's going to have his way with you. Um, remember Peter. Peter who, Christ said, you know, Satan wants to have you to sift you like wheat. How is it that Satan was able to get through to Peter? God allowed it, but Peter allowed it. How did Peter allow it? He was bragging about how everybody else was going to run. I'm going to stay there. 
I'm not, and Peter was not depending on God's power. What power was he depending on? His own. You lose every time. You've got to depend on God's power. Peter exposed himself because through his sin, through his disobedience, he exposed himself. All right? And that's what we need to be careful of. Spiritually, we need to be careful not to expose ourselves to demonic forces. That's the whole armor of God stuff, where you keep your armor on. Why do you have the shield of faith? You have the shield of faith to be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. You want to be able to stand firm. You want to stand protected. Why do you have the helmet of salvation so that the blows will bounce off? All right, That's the whole concept of spiritual warfare in the Bible where we need to stand firm and be prepared. So would you say that there are any residual effects There could be. Yeah. And yeah, and the and the and the point is, again, here's the whole point throughout this whole discussion. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay? You do not have to be afraid of demonic forces. You don't have to be afraid of the devil. You don't have to be afraid of demons. Alright? You need to be respectful of their power. And even Michael was, right? The Lord rebuke you. Um even he did not go after Satan. He said the Lord rebuke you. All right. So we need to be careful to, you know, when we when we encounter this, we need to be careful not to think that somehow because I'm just a Christian, I can command demons and I can tell them to do this and do that and do the other thing. No, there's not. In fact, how were the how were the disciples able to cast out demons in Mark? Jesus gave them authority. They didn't have it on their own. He he gave them authority in that situation to have that power. You forgot what you were going to say already. See, if you had that extra hour of sleep, you'd have been all right. I'm sorry. You said that, and I think I'm remembering this correctly, you're actually going to have a class on spiritual armor. Yeah, there's going to be probably two two weeks on spiritual armor, and we're going to have three weeks on the whole concept of spiritual warfare, where we talk about, you know, this this in detail. Yeah, in a couple weeks. And in fact, if you want to read it, it's out on my website. It's out on the openword.org website. It's one of the papers out there. Theopenword.org. Theopenword, all one word.org. Yeah, there's a whole paper out there on spiritual warfare um, that we'll be going over. Um, but the point is this, folks. Demons are organized. All right? They're, 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 they're not as organized as God is organized, but there is an organizational structure to them. They are behind spiritual deception in this world. And really, that's, that's really what they're behind is the spiritual deception of the ages. They want to deceive people into thinking that they're doing the right thing when in fact they're doing the wrong thing. That's where, they're, that's where they're, their attention is at. Um, but there are some glimpses, other glimpses in the New Testament. For example, in Revelation 9.15, four unclean spirits will lead the 200 million man army to the Battle of Armageddon. Talk about the demons who are bound up in the river Euphrates. Who are they? We don't know. How they get bound there? We're not sure. All we know is that they were bound there. What is it? How they get there? We're not told. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It just says there are four unclean spirits, which are demons, and they go out to deceive, right, all of humanity. And then, for example, in Revelation 16:13 through 15, we have three unclean spirits like frogs it says come out of the mouth of the Antich- I think it's the Antichrist there and they go out to deceive the nations to draw them together to the battle of what? Armageddon. Alright? So is there an organizational structure to them? Yeah, there is. We don't know all the details and particulars of that but there are there is an organizational structure. So does this all make sense here what we're trying to get at? Yes, there's an organization we have some hints of what it might look like, but we don't know all of the details of that. All right. But the fact that in that listing in Ephesians 6, it's very evident, at least in my understanding, that organization is what's being depicted by naming different kinds of you know, principalities, yeah. powers. There you go. All yeah. the different names indicate different Mm-hmm. There appear to be ranks. There appear to be different demonic forces. Is every, angel, is every demon as powerful as Satan? No. 
So there appears to be a differentiation there. I mean, even in the holy angels, there's a differentiation, right? We got cherubim, seraphim. You know, so there appears to be different kinds. Archangel, Michael's the archangel. So there, there appear to be differences there. Um, we're not told exactly all of the differences and how that all works out. But we are given a, at several places in the New Testament, for example, in Ephesians 1.21 and, and 3.10 and, and chapter 6. It talks about principalities, power, might, and dominions. Colossians 1.16, 1 Peter 3.22 talks about this. Where, God, where Christ has power over the principalities and powers. And Satan is called the prince of the air. All right. So there is an organizational ranking of them. How that all works out, we're not sure, but there is an organization there. And they are bent on deception and destruction. That's what their mode is. That's what they're after. Um, and that's what I'm just saying at the bottom warning there. When you read some of these books that talk about territorial demons or a demon over your house or a demon over your block or a demon over your city, we don't know if that's true. There's no indication in the Bible if that's true or not. We wouldn't know if that's true or not. Where they're organized to that level. Really, where, and this is the other thing to understand, and that's what I'm trying to get at here. Again, 99% of Satan, Satan's effort and demonic effort is not in getting people to individually commit acts of sin. It's deception. It's spiritual deception. It's to get behind the false religions of the world and to promote those. Alright? And that's where Satan has really pulled it off. Satan is behind Islam. Where did Islam come from? Satan. Doctrines of demons. Where did Jehovah Witnesses come from? Doctrines of demons. What about Mormonism? Doctrines of demons. Buddhism, Shintoism, all the other religions of the world. It's doctrines of demons. And they're behind that to deceive. And even the lunatic fringe of Christianity. Yes. No, it is. But Islam is a demonic system of belief. It is demonic. They deny Jesus Christ as Savior. They deny His... They believe He died on the cross, but He's just a prophet. Muhammad is a better prophet. Um, Islam is a demonic system of belief. Um, they do not believe in the one true God. Um, they, they believe in Allah, which is not the one true God of the Bible. Right. You know. And... and, and Behind the, the religions of the world, behind all the false religions of the world, there are demonic forces at work to deceive nations. Remember, it's just interesting. In, in Revelation 20, it says, "And the devil that deceived them was where? Where is he cast? In the lake of fire. The devil that deceived them. Deception is the devil's trade. That's what he's up to." And I'll tell you how deceptive he is. You know, you know, we think, you know, well, you know, I can figure out what he's up to. I'll tell you how deceptive he is. After 1,000 years of peace and prosperity and heaven on earth, with God ruling, Satan shows up, and how many people does he deceive? You can't even number them. Like the sand of the seashore that come up against Jerusalem. You can't even number them. Think about it. A thousand years of peace. Think about living in the millennium. No war. Prosperity. No hunger. No famines. Living in a veritable garden of Eden worked over again. Ruled over by the Creator God Himself. And at the end, you rebel and want to throw Him off the throne. That's how deceptive Satan is. I find it also interesting whether we're talking Isaiah where... Satan is the prince of Babylon or Ezekiel, prince of Tyre or uh, Revelation 13 or, uh, interestingly, Persia, Babylon, I'm not sure about Tyre, but you said this morning it certainly could be, you know, true. That, But I know that Babylon and Persia are former names of Iraq. Yeah. So it's interesting that that... Well, Persia is Iran. Persia, okay. Persia's Iran. Okay. Right. You know, and that was really the, that's where human that's you know after the after um, the Ark landed that's where humanity began to spread from. 
from those areas. That's true. Okay. But, but interestingly, you bring up a good point, and if I get down this rabbit trail, we'll never get done today. But if you look at the concept of Babylon in the Scripture, remember we talked about that a little bit. Babylon is not only a demonic system of belief, right, of religion. It's also, in the end times, this is pictured as the, as the final economic system of the world as well. In Revelation 17, you have the destruction of the whore on the beast. In Revelation 18, you have the destruction of Babylon, the city of commerce and, and, and trade. Who's behind both of them? Satan is behind both of them. So, you know, God's going to destroy destroy that. And it's something Babylon. Remember, Babylon started in Genesis chapter 10, actually chapter 11, where we have the first world religion headed by Nimrod, who built a ziggurat to supposedly commune with the gods. And you know what? Nimrod was the great-grandson of who? Noah. Noah. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. And in fact, Noah was alive when Nimrod lived. And so was Shem. Now think about that. Here you have an entire world religion being formulated at the Tower of Babel. And who's alive when that was going on? Noah, Shem. You could have gone down and talked to great grandpa Noah and he could have told you about the flood and you're off making a false religion. You, you want to understand how deceptive Satan is? Try to think about that. Think about living in a society where you have people next door to you that was living before the flood and you're saying, well, I'm not going to worship the God that brought the flood. I'm going to go worship this other God here that we we're making up. You talk about deception. You talk about spiritual deception at a high level. I'll tell you what, it doesn't take long to lose it. That's how deceptive Satan is. And don't think that Nimrod was just saying, I'm going to create a system of religion and take everybody to hell with me. He was thought he was doing the right thing. That's how deceptive Satan is. You were no match for his deception. And you look at the book of Judges. Just you look at the book of Judges at the end of the book of Judges there where you've got those... If you read the book of Judges, there's an interesting... Um, few chapters towards the end there where you have the concubine, the Benjamite concubine, it was cut in pieces and some weird stuff. And you say, I don't understand. why what, That is weird. Why did the Holy Spirit stick that in the Bible? I, that's more information than I need to know. Well, you need to understand that both of those events took place two generations after Moses. The people who were, the, the, the one in the book of Judges where the one guy went up North and created a, you know, the guy hired a high priest. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about here. But go read the end of the book of Judges. Where he hired the high priest, Jonathan, I think it was Jonathan the high priest or Micah or something like that. Micah hired Jonathan. Jonathan was the great grandson of of Moses. Two generations after God delivered Israel from the promised land, brought them through the Red Sea, gave them the land, they're off into idolatry. Two generations it doesn't take long to lose this walk. That's how deceptive Satan is. He is a deceiver and he is very, very, very good at it. And we are all suckers in his eyes because we, we can be deceived. And that's why we need to be people of the Word and people of the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding and insight. And we need to constantly pray that God would open our eyes and help us to see what's going on because if we don't, we're done for. We can't, we can't stand. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's kind of dumb to build a tower to reach the God in the middle of a plane. Well, I understand that, start on a mountain. Yeah, start on a mountain. At least, at least, at least get a leg up. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't a tower to reach up to God. Rather, it was. A, it was a ziggurat. It was a. In those days, you built towers, and on top of the towers, you had your little temples. And that's what it was for. It was not to. I'm going to, we're going to build a tower so tall that we can actually climb up there and touch God. I mean, if you're going to do that, I'm going to start on top of a mountain. I'm not going to start in the middle of a valley on a plane. Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to get a leg up, um, so to speak. But it was, what it was, it was the beginning of religion. It was the beginning of anti-God religion. Babylon was the, 
And, and that's why, for example, in, in Revelation 17, when you see Babylon on the back of the, of the dragon, it's called what? The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. What do you mean the mother of harlots? Well, what is, what is false religion seen as in the scriptures? Harlotry. Where did it all start? Babylon. That's where it all started. That's where all of this stuff comes from. And God's going to destroy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what did God commanded them to do? Multiply and fill the earth, not make a city. Scatter. And God scattered them. He, he pulled that off by confounding their language. He scattered them. And, and, you know, one of the things you can think about today, this afternoon, all right, in, 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 Revelation, no, in, Revelation, in Genesis 11, God scattered the nations. What's going to happen at the end time? They're going to all come back together. Yeah. What's their locations? This is, this is a little bit interesting. Where are demons at? Where are they at right now? Okay. Where are they at? Well, for the most part, a lot, many of them are active in the world today. How do you know that? Well, we get a glimpse of that in the book of Job, right? And evidently, even now, demons have access to heaven. They are under God's sovereign control. They can't do anything they want to do. All right? They are certainly powerful, but they can't do everything. I love it when those... They're so embarrassing when it happens, you know? At work, um, I try to get a a ringtone that I can hear that is unique and some other joker has to get the same thing. So every time his goes off, I'm looking at my phone trying to think of it. you got to get your own. Hey, Schaefer, wake up or something. Like but what are demons, where are they at? They're, they're active in the world today. And for example, God asked Satan, where have you been? Not, does God need to know? God knows where Satan is at. That's not the point. God wants Satan to tell him. What does Satan say? From walking to and fro and up and down in the earth. That's what I'm doing. And Peter says, Satan is a roaring lion walking about seeking what? Someone to devour. All right? So they're, they're free. They're, they're active in the world today. And what are their activities? Well, mainly it's false religions and opposing God's purposes and plans in whatever form that is. And however they can pull it off, they're going to be at it. So these are free demons. They are active. They, they were active in Christ's day, for example. Um, they, they opposed Christ. They were in the maniac of gatherings. They were in the demon-possessed people that Christ um, cast them out of in his ministry. But there's also in the Bible a group of people, a group of demons called the temporary, we call them the temporarily bound. Where do they come from? When Revelation 9, we're given an image where the, the bottomless pit is opened up. And what comes out of the bottomless pit? The abusas. It, it, these demons come out. What do these demons do when they come out? In Revelation 9. Now, these, this isn't them. They come out and they're, they're given power to torment men how many months? Five months, remember? Look up Revelation 9. And you have... Let's look that up. Let's look up Revelation 9. I was told to slow down in the class so that we could talk about this more, so I'm slowing down. How's that? I gotta get I gotta get the right glasses so I can read it. Oh, go ahead. And uh, if you ever watch the Discovery Channel, which you should, which which is really interesting, did you, you know? Do you know that scorpions is the only animal that appears on all seven continents? It's the only. It's the only creature that's on all you can find in all seven continents. Not even ants. Not even ants. Antarctica does not have ants. All right, it has scorpions. Believe it or not, and and they're interesting. They 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 tried this on these little buggers. You can you can you can freeze them solid in a block of ice, and thaw them out and they'll live. 
And they can stand temperatures up to, I think it was 160 or 70 degrees. They're tough little buggers to kill. Cockroaches have nothing to these guys. And uh, not only that, this is interesting, not only that, but the toxin that they produce is the most painful toxin known to science. So when the Bible says you have a sting like a scorpion, you can bet that that's painful. And where were they? They were in the abyss, the bottomless pit. Now, this is... They look like locusts and and the appearance is because of their number. And in in those days, what was a swarming mass of locusts? That's how they saw them. There's a a lot of them. They come out and they are are allowed out of the bottomless pit, the abusas. Now, um, I'm throwing this in for free. And you can do your own research on this. All right. But this word abusas appears a couple of times in the New Testament. For example, it shows up with the maniac of Gadarenes. Remember when the demons begged Christ not to send them where? To the abyss. Don't send us to the abyss. Okay. Now, why would they be afraid of that? I've always asked myself a question. Why why are they afraid of the abyss? I mean... Well, that's men there. But they, you know, when, when you look at that, then you look at this passage here, the abyss, and where's Satan bound in the millennium? In the abyss. You get the idea, and, and this, is, this is, you know, my understanding, that the abyss is to a demon what hell is to a human. Okay? When you die, when, when an unbeliever dies, where do they go? They go to a place called Hades. Now, that's not eternal hell. There's a difference. You understand that. The eternal hell is called the lake of fire. It's called everlasting fire. That's eternal hell. Is anybody in eternal hell right now? It's empty. There's nothing there. There's no one there. Who's the first two occupants? Antichrist and the false prophet. Who's the third occupant? Satan. Alright? So, eternal hell is empty right now. But... When people die, when unbelievers die, they go to a place called Hades. It's a, it's a confining place. It's a place of torment. It's a place of anguish, of pain. Where do you get that? Well, the rich man and Lazarus, right? Where was he? Hades. And that's the word used, by the way. That is the word in the New Testament that's used. It's Hades. So a lot of times, in, in, in like in your King James Version, when it talks about cast into hellfire, hellfire there is Gehenna, which is probably a reference to eternal fire. Fire, but when it talks about the rich man and Lazarus, it's talking about Hades. Okay, Hades is a place of confinement. Now, death and hell, Hades in Revelation 20 are cast eventually where? Into the lake of fire. All right. So when an unbeliever dies right now, they go to a place called Hades. It's a place of torment. It's a place of anguish. It's a place of deprivation. And you see that in the rich man and Lazarus. It's not a place you want to be at. All right. And when a demon goes outside the boundaries of God's permissive will, where do they, where do they endanger of being sent to? Not to Hades, to the abyss. Why did the demons beg Christ not to send them to the abyss? Because they would not be free to do what? They'd be confined. They would be in a place of confinement. They don't want to go there. And how do you know that the abyss is a place of confinement? Where what Satan, when he's thrown in there, what he's confined, right? He's bottled up. He can't get out. All right. So when you look at all the evidence in the New Testament, it appears as though the abyss, the abyss, is to demonic forces what Hades is to human. It's a place of confinement. It's a place that you can't get out of, and you don't want to go there if you're a demon. You don't want to be in that place. We'll talk about those. Yeah, that's the, that's the second part here. We'll talk about those. But 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 the abyss is a place of confinement. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading this article and it said that it was on where the believers go when they die. Mm-hmm. And they said that Hades is like two big Yeah, that was a popularized. Um, 
you know, paradise. We're talking about, you know, the, 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 um, the, uh, the poor man was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, paradise. Um, it's a little fuzzy. There are some that say, yes, there, there was a separate place of rest for the believers that died. And then when Christ rose again from the dead, he took all of them to heaven with him. Um, others say, no, if you, as a believer, when they died, they went directly to heaven, whether it's Old or New Testament. I'm not exactly sure where I, I land on that. I'm sort of leaning to the first, although I see John MacArthur, for example, believes it's the second. Um, we do know that a believer, whenever they die, they go to a place of rest. All right. Now, the reason I would say that I would, I would think there were two places prior to the resurrection of Christ is because when the witch of Endor showed up, where did Samuel come from? He came out of the earth, not down from heaven. All right? The Bible doesn't tell us all those details. Um, but a believer who dies now, where do you go? To be present with the Lord. Where's the Lord at? Heaven, that's where you go now. All right? But for, for demons, there is this confining place, this prison cell that they can be sent to, that they are scared to death of going to. I mean, these demons were scared when Christ showed up. They said, don't send us to the abyss. Isn't it also not just a place of confinement, but also a place of falling? Isn't that why it's called the bottomless pit? Yeah, it could be a place of falling, a place of torture. It's a pit that has no bottom. You know, we're not given the exact physical structure. <laughs> you know, Do we know the exact physical structure of hell? No. Not really, other than... Fire, right? I mean, that, that's what we're given the imagery of. But, you know, is it a big cavern? Is it stalactites? Is it flowing lava? You know, we're not told that. Um, it is a, not a place you want to be. And the demons do not want to be in the abyss. All right? But there is some demons that are in the abyss right now that during the tribulational period they're going to be released in order to torment men. Revelation 9 clearly says that. And then there's the permanently bound demons. All right? And the person who wants to know about those is leaving, so. I'm getting a hard time. Permanently bound demons. Who are these demons? Well, in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, there is a reference to spirits who are in everlasting chains, reserved unto judgment until the great day. And uh, in both contexts... All right. It's in the context of the flood. It talks about the demons who are disobedient in the time of the flood. And these demons, these beings here, are bound. It says they are permanently bound until when? Until the judgment of the great day. So evidently, whatever these demons did was so heinous or so outside the boundaries that God had set up that they do not get out. They are bound in chains of darkness. Um, Peter uses the word Tartarosas, Tartarus, which is a, if you want to think about it, think of Tartarus as a descriptive form of abyss. They're in a place of chains and darkness and they're bound and they're not going to get out. The only time they get out is for the judgment of the great day. And then they're going to be cast alive with the rest of fallen humanity and the rest of Satan and his angels into everlasting fire, which is the lake of fire. All right. So these are permanently bound demons. And the question, of course, then is, well, good night. I mean, they must have been really bad. What did they do? Well, we have a hint of what they might have done. If we look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4, um, it talks about uh, the sons of God who cohabitated with the daughters of men. All right. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation on what this means. Um, some have said, well, the sons of God were the godly line of Seth who married the beautiful daughters of men who were from the ungodly line of Cain. And my only question there is, does that mean that all the Seth's daughters were ugly? Because they didn't marry any of them. That doesn't make any sense. All right? It doesn't make, you know, if you'd expect, if, if, if there was intermarriage, if it was the concept of intermarriage, what would you expect to see? Both ways, Right? You'd expect to see sons of Cain marry daughters of God or whatever you want to call it there. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. That, 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 um, 
It just doesn't make any sense given the context. What does make sense, if you compare that passage with Jude and with Second Peter, is evidently, in that day and age, demonic forces somehow cohabitated with men to produce some kind of human demonic offspring. How that all works out, don't know. But that fits the context of what's going on. Because why did God bring the flood to wipe out all of humanity except Noah? Why did God have to wipe all of humanity out? Well, because of sin. But think about it. If, if all of humanity becomes so polluted that you had demon-human offspring, is that a redeemable offspring? No. no. And what will happen to the line of Christ? It wouldn't happen. The whole plan of God would come crashing down. God had to wipe that out. God had to wipe that civilization out. All of humanity had to be wiped out. Also, it's interesting that this, this offspring were called Nephilim, great men, men of old, men of renown. And you scratch your head, well, what is that? Well, they were something other than normal human beings. And when you look at the language of Genesis 1 through 6, 1 through 4, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that they're talking about people, real people. It doesn't make any sense they're talking about humans. There's something else going on there because of the words that are being used and the, and the thing. And by the way, let's look at sons of God here. Um, there's a couple of arguments. We'll go down through these. Some say, well, the sons of God refer to men. Okay? Um, if you just read the passage, you're not, you don't have Second Peter, and you don't have Jude, you're just reading this passage. You would say, well, it just means that you know, there was some marriage there going on and they produced this, this uh, evil generation. Um, apparently, it fits in with the statement of Jesus in Matthew 22, 30. They, you know, we're talking about in the days of Noah, they were marrying, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, things like that. The law of biogenesis, what's that? Like life produces life. So there's a, people say, well, how can you have an angel and a human being cohabit and produce some kind of offspring? All right? And it, it would seem that if they had children being born, it had to be human children being born. That doesn't make any sense that they're angelic human children. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and they point out that when you see mighty men throughout the Bible, it always refers to, to men, to humans. Um, you know, we, we, this, this thing of demons inhabiting or cohabitating with women doesn't make any, any sense. Well, the problem with Let's look at the other side here. And I'm, I'm really crunching through what could be days of discussion on this. If you look at them, well, could they be angels? Well, the phrase sons of God always refers to angels in the Old Testament. That's one of the hermeneutical principles. When you see a term used, you say, okay, where's that used elsewhere in the Bible? How is that understood throughout Scripture? And throughout Scripture, sons of God always refers to angelic beings. There was a human that was the son of God. There were two humans that were called sons of God. Who were they? And Adam. Why was Adam a son of God? He was created by God. He had his origin, direct creation. Um, sons of God refer to God's direct creation. All right. Um, the word Nephilim here, giants, could actually be rendered fallen ones. There's something unique about these giants, these Nephilim. There was something different about them that was not normal. So that would tend you to believe that this is referring, if you just take it at face value, this is referring to angelic demons or fallen angels somehow cohabitating with women to produce some kind of unredeemable offspring. Now, immediately the question is, okay, how does that work out? I thought angels didn't marry, nor they're not, they don't marry nor are given in marriage. Well, they don't, but whenever angels appear in the Bible, how do they appear? As men. The Bible doesn't say they are sexless. It just says they don't reproduce. There's no indication that they were female angels. All right? Um, and if anything, what could, have, what could be going on here? Well, another possibility is that these are demons that so inhabit and possess men, right, that they actually pass on their characteristics to their offspring. Where does your immaterial part come from? Your parents, right? The real you, your soul, where does it come from? Your parents. God doesn't create your soul. We can talk about that in anthropology. It comes from your parents, right? God does not create 
God does not create a human soul and stick it in a fallen body when you were conceived. God created within the procreative process, I don't know how he did this, but he created the ability to not only produce a body, but a living soul as well. How that works out, don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. That's the best way to understand it. Soul being separate from the spirit. No, soul and spirit I think are the same. I'm a dichotomist. You got immaterial part and material. Yeah, question. So technically that means that you have bad parents or bad souls No. We all have bad parents, right? Right? Anybody have holy parents? No, no, I mean I don't. I no. Yeah. You'd pass it on. And that's, I think that's what you see happening here in Genesis. Now, is that happening today now? Probably not, because what happens if they try to pull it off now? They go to the abyss. That's not something you want to do. I, again, look, there's been a lot of trees killed over this, and a lot of stuff written on this. All right? And all I'm trying to do is say, well, what is the most <coughs> clear way to understand these this, this text, it seems to me this text indicates that somehow there was some kind of demonic human intermarrying reproduction going on that produced an unredeemable humanity. How that all works out, all the mechanics of that, don't know. But when you compare this scripture with Jude and with Peter, it seems to indicate that. Another argument here is in Peter and Jude it says, the angels who kept not their first estate, it calls. They kept not their own sphere of habitation. And it says, and these like Sodom went after strange flesh. Now let's think of Sodom. How did Sodom go after strange flesh? More than that. They went after the angels. They tried to go after the angels. And they were struck blind, remember? And it said, these angels like Sodom went after strange flesh. Well, how does an angel go after strange flesh or flesh not its own? Human. It seems to me that's the best understanding. All right? There's a lot of speculation on that. It seems there's a best understanding. But these angels here are permanently bound. Now, the Jewish scholars agreed with this. You have legends that talk about you know, superhuman beings. Um, the early church believed this. Um, why did, they, why did they get permanently bound? I mean, they had to do something really, really bad to get stuck in a place that they don't get out of until judgment. And, and I think in a way, you still have to think about it, that, that may be one of the ways in God, which God controls some of the activities of demonic forces, right? If you step out of line, if you cross a particular line, where do you go? To the abyss. And you don't get out. And that would put a damper on your activities if you don't want to go there. Um, it's interesting here. It says the spirits in prison sinned in the days of Noah by going after strange flesh. Well, what's the best way to understand that? Well, you just compare how did Sodom and Gomorrah go after strange flesh? Men went after angels. So, in this case, it could be angels going after men. Alright? So, I think that you know, the best understanding of Genesis, Jude, and Peter seem to indicate that these were demonic beings. Sons of God were demons. Were they, were they angels that, or demon, demons that took on human form and procreated? Were they demons who so inhabited and possessed the, the human host that they passed their characteristics along in procreation to their offspring? Both of those could be possibilities, but I think one of them is what went on. One of them is definitely what went on. That makes the best sense with all of the passages. Alright? So we'll leave that there. Let's see how many more do we have. Let's, um, let's do this. Let's stop here now. We'll get out a few minutes early um, because we'll finish this up next week. And we'll probably start the, um, the Doctrine of Satan next week as well. So you'll be getting some new notes on it. Any questions from the stuff today? We, didn't, we went over quite a bit. And again, one of the things I mentioned is that we're circling some of these topics because we keep coming back to them because that's just the nature of this particular study. And uh, when we start talking about um, spiritual warfare, we'll even revisit some of these same ideas um, as we work through that. 
Um, but by the way, there is a paper out on theopenword.org on spiritual warfare that is what we're going to be using as the basis for our discussion. So, any questions? or Okay. Well, let's close in prayer then. Father, thanks for this day and for granting us the opportunity to come out here and to be exposed to Your Word. And uh, I, I pray that we would have a balanced approach to this topic of demons and angels and Satan. We do not need to live in fear, Father, of what they may be up to. We, we don't even need to know what they're up to other than that they oppose You. What we need to do, Father, is depend on You to submit ourselves to You, to trust in You, to put on our armor, to stand firm, to be prepared, to be vigilant, and ask that You would give us the victory. I pray that You would also give us wisdom, spiritual wisdom and insight to, to see what is really going on. We, we are deceived in and of ourselves, Father. We're just not able to understand all Satan is up to. But Your Spirit can give us insight into that area that you can protect us and we pray that you would and deliver us from the evil one and we just thank you for this day in christ's name amen